Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And we're here every weekday at four on this great radio station to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions. Whatever you have on your heart, whatever you might be going through. If there's any way that we can provide some help, we'd love to do that. Here are your phone numbers for your live calls. 340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free mobile app. That's the Calvary Chapel mobile app. And if you're driving in your car, the safest way to do it, and we want you to be safe. I was reminded of this just a few minutes ago. There was a big accident right out our back door here and I could hear all the sirens and the crashing and all that. So we want you to be safe. Use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, You can use the hands-free feature and just hit the call now button uh, on your phone and you're immediately connected to our studio producer who happens today to be the great studio producer, Barry, my friend. Okay, 340-9585. We don't have anything uh, going today. So uh, let's go to our first phone call. We've got Jordan from Stone Oak on line three. Hi, Jordan. Good to hear from you again. Hey, how you doing? Doing good. Thank you. Okay, so my question today is, um, the first one would be, is it possible to stop sinning? And the reason I say that is Jesus says, be perfect, for I am perfect. Yet, mm-hmm. you know, the Apostle Paul says, is, you know, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the gift of grace is without repentance. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of tears me apart, because if I'm honest with myself, completely 100% honest, I have to admit that I sin on a daily basis. And I talked with my parents about this. Great people raised 10 kids, and they used to be, we used to be as a family, in a cult who basically was works-based. It's you get yeah. to heaven basically by what you do, and it just I've, I saw how that tore their life apart in, in yeah. a way. And, um, you know, I talked to them just a, a few weeks ago, and they said, I asked them, I said, Mom, do you sin every day? And she goes, well, if I'm honest with myself, yes. And I same thing <laughs> with my dad, and the answer was yes. And I if I'm honest with myself, I have to tell you that I sin every day. So when I, any good Christian, and I'm sure you would say, if I sin, your answer would be, okay, you need to turn from that and repent. And I would agree. Um, yet, you know, I, I'm, I'm just torn from do I need, how do I stop sinning? Is it possible to stop sinning um, completely? And then two, um, you know, I'll just save that for another time. Okay, thank you, Jordan. Appreciate it very much. Uh, Jordan, this is a question that people have been fretting over for many, 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 many years. So uh, you're not alone when you are struggling with your old nature. A couple of things. 
Uh, first and foremost, let me say that when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your Father in heaven was perfect, he was giving human beings an unattainable standard. What he was saying, and here's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, when you read Matthew chapter 5, and, and the be perfect is the last verse of Matthew chapter 5, when you read that, it brings you to your knees in your utter uh, lack of ability to, to do any of it. it. It's contrary to everything and anything um, in this battle with our flesh. So what he was doing, you have to remember the context. He was talking to a Jewish audience. We can never forget that Jesus' um, ministry was entirely Jewish. Uh, he was speaking in the hearing of religious leaders who were opposing him even that early in his ministry. And what he was saying is, look, I've come to deliver you from sin. I've come to set you free. If you don't believe in me, here's how you can get to heaven without believing in me. Be perfect. So he wasn't telling us to, to, to strive for sinless perfection. What he was telling us is that there's no way that anybody can measure up to the standard of God because the standard of heaven, Jordan, is perfection. Now, the good news for us is that 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we sin and confess our sin, He, God, is faithful to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. So here's the process, Jordan. When we sin, our fellowship with God is broken. Whether it's willful sin or, uh, or we sin uh, unaware, sin separates us from God in fellowship. That's why it's so important to understand that all we need to do is ask to be forgiven. Genuinely hate our sin. I'm so sorry I did it. And God provides the forgiveness. God restores the relationship completely. So it's never going to be possible in this world to live without sin. Uh, try it for one day. You can't do it. Um, our flesh is always accompanying us. Romans chapters 5, 6, and 7 in particular. Jordan, uh, the Apostle Paul shares his own experience with his flesh. What I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And so what we do is understand that the conclusion he came to was who can rescue me from this body of death? I thank my God through Jesus Christ. And the answer is the same for you, Jordan. The answer is the same for me. So it's not possible that we're going to live without sin. But what we want to do is let the Holy Spirit convict us of our sin very quickly and help Him. Uh, ask Him to help us make be, be more aware of our sin even before we sin. Jordan, just as an example, I used to have a really foul mouth. You know, I played baseball in college and and um, always was hanging around baseball players. And, and we had filthy mouths. I was a car salesman when I started uh, in my working life. And car salesmen also have filthy mouths. So it was nothing to curse all the time. When I got saved... Those words didn't just magically go away because they were so much of a habit. So what I did was I asked Jesus because I knew it dishonored him. I asked him, I said, make me aware of my sin. I, I know that sin comes from the heart. It doesn't come out of the mouth unless it's already in the heart. So what I would say is before that sin that's in my heart gets to my brain and then triggers my mouth, help me be aware of it so that at least I don't embarrass you, that I don't misrepresent you. And, and he answers those prayers. And you'd start to curse, and then you'd, at least I did, and then I would, I'd catch myself, and I'd remind myself that, oh, thank you, Jesus, for doing that. So we're going to sin because we have a sin nature. This is a battle that's going to go on until we're with the Lord. Now, here's one other piece of good news, Jordan. It's possible always not to sin. When we sin, God gives us a way out. We don't have to fall into sin. But because of this battle with the flesh and because of our weakness, we're going to. I'm also, Jordan, I'll end this with this. I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, the situation with your family, having been in a cult and, and always involved in a works righteousness thing. That's the, the, the surest way to be trapped into sin. We get discouraged. We get frustrated because we can't do well on our own. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't be good. We don't even have the desire to be good on our own. 
So what we do is spend time with Jesus. And in his presence, there's always the power available not to sin. The temptations are always going to come. Many of them, most of them, in fact, come from an outside source. The world that we live in, our own flesh, or or even an enemy who's trying to cause us to fall. But being with Jesus always makes it possible not to sin. The truth is, Jordan, when we choose sin, when we're tempted, that's when we're saying goodbye, at least for a moment or longer, to Jesus. In his presence, we need not sin. But when we do sin, Paul writes, we have an advocate with the Father, the one and only mediator between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus. So, Jordan, I hope that answers your question. Uh, Don't stress, just enjoy grace. You know, there's a grace for salvation, but there's also grace for everyday living. And when you're walking in that grace, you'll be so focused on walking and talking with Jesus that you'll find temptation gets easier and easier to avoid. Thank you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Randy. He says, what did it mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Is Pharaoh responsible for what he did? Uh, Randy, he is responsible for what he did, and here's why. In the story, and this goes back to Exodus, everybody knows the story. I'm familiar with this uh, especially today because I just taught it in Romans chapter 9 a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago. Uh, in, in, In the book of Romans, the New Testament, we're told that God hardens the hearts of those he chooses just as he has mercy on the hearts that he chooses to have mercy on. And too often we read that like, well, see, God's the cause of it all, so there's no problem. If God has mercy, great. If he hardens my heart, it's not my fault. But remember the two examples that he used were Moses and Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God seven times. God gave him ten opportunities with each of the plagues to do what is right, to acknowledge what he knew to be true, that that Moses' God really was God and he wasn't God. Pharaoh believed he was the human incarnation of Ra, the sun god. And Pharaoh said, who is this God that I should bow down before him? Ten times God gave him opportunities with increasing severity with each of the, of the plagues. And through that whole exchange, we read over and over and over that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart seven times. And finally, God gave him over to his heart That's what it means when it says finally that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God just gave him over to his own heart. So it wasn't Pharaoh's, um, um, the fact that God hardened his heart that was his problem. The problem was that he, Pharaoh, hardened his heart against God. And I've said many times on this program that the more often you say no to God, the easier it is to say no the next time. And pretty soon you don't even think about saying yes. Well, that's what happened to Pharaoh. So yes, he is responsible for what he did. Pharaoh will uh, has been in eternal torment for all these thousands of years, and he will eventually be thrown into the lake of fire. But it's not because God didn't try. It's not because God didn't warn him. God gave him every opportunity. But yes, it, Pharaoh is responsible in the same way, Randy. We, all of us, are responsible for what we do. Thank you for the question. 340-9585 or 877-630-KSLR. Here's an anonymous question. Um, He or she says, I was raised in church and walked away. Where can someone like me find the truth? Anonymous, the problem is that being raised in church doesn't save anybody. Jesus saves. And since he's the only truth, he's the only source for you to find truth. I talked about this in a message that I did just this past Sunday. You know, we have this magical feeling about church. Well, I just need to get back in church. Everything will be okay. It's Jesus who saves. It's not church. Church is where you come to learn about Jesus. But Jesus is the one who saves. 
Now, let me say this to you, Anonymous. God's not mad at you because you walked away. You've broken his heart, but he can take it. And you know what he does? He figuratively is holding out his arms to you. And it's Jesus' words. He's saying, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And because he's the only source of truth, he's also anonymous, the only source of rest. So it doesn't matter that you walked away. You can look anywhere and everywhere else. You won't find truth anywhere except in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when you find that truth, will you go to church? Of course you will, because that's where he is. That's where his people are. That's where you use the gifts that he's given you or will give you to serve his people. But Jesus is demonstrably true. The evidence is overwhelming. He was a real historical figure. He lived. He said more impact on the world. This this man that lived 2,000 some years ago, meager means, humbly, has changed the world like no other figure in history. It's also demonstrably true based on the overwhelming evidence that he really lived and they killed him. But just as he predicted, he wouldn't stay dead and on the third day after he was killed, he was risen from the dead. And you see, Anonymous, the empty tomb is what every unbelieving person has to deal with. No other religious leader ever claimed to that he was going to die and be risen from the dead. No other influential person in history was ever resurrected from the dead only to still be alive. And when you look at that empty tomb where a body should be, you come to the conclusion that, well, if that body's not there and Jesus said that's what would happen, then everything he said is true. And he said he's the only source of life and truth. So you find truth at the empty tomb. That means then you go to your Bible, you find truth there, because the Bible is his story, Jesus' story. So here's what I would suggest that you do. Come home, not to church, to Jesus. Come home to Jesus. Open a Bible. I would suggest you start with the Gospel of John and just spend some time. Read the stories. Are they true? Are they demonstrably true? And if they are, in the course of you reading the Gospel of John, I promise you, you'll be convinced. Jesus said, if you seek him, He'll be found by you. The Bible says he's a rewarder of those who diligently or earnestly seek him. So that's all you've got to do. And then you surrender your life to him. If we can help you, use the same address you used to get this question to me, and we'll help you. Before going on to another question, you know, we struggle as Christians with this whole idea of kids growing up in church, parents raising them to be Christian. We're a good Christian family. But many times those kids never get born again. And there comes a point when they grow up and they have to make their own choices and they're weaned off mom and dad's faith. And they choose sin or they choose Jesus. The good thing is that when we walk away, he's eager to bring us back. He makes it so easy. All we have to do is ask. My study just this past Sunday here at Calvary Chapel was Romans chapter 10. How close is Jesus? He's as near as your mouth. In your heart, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's how simple 
God makes it. So Anonymous, I hope that that's exactly what you'll do. Thanks for the question. Here is a question from Larry. Larry says, Willow Creek Church has just named a woman pastor to be the head of the church when Bill Hybels steps down. How can he do that if the Bible says women aren't supposed to be pastors? Well, Larry, the answer to how he can do it or how any church with a woman pastor can do it is that they just don't care what the Bible says. It's more important to be thought of as progressive for a lot of churches, for women who are called to be pastors or they think they are. It's more important to be sensitive about their feelings. We don't want to tell anybody God didn't call you to do that. But see, we can do that. And we can do it in love. The New Testament could not be any more clear. The Old Testament is also patriarchal in terms of authority structure. But our New Testaments couldn't be any more clear. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. The position of pastor is a position of authority. A pastor is someone who has the teaching position in the church. And the fact that Willow Creek did it doesn't surprise me. They've always been a seeker-sensitive church. They've shied away from talking about sin. It's a church that is focused for many, many years. It's a huge, huge church. It's in Illinois. It's a huge church, but it's easy to have a huge church if you tell people what you want, what they want to hear. And so their attention to doctrine is lacking. So it's not surprising that this is a choice they've made. Women aren't supposed to be pastors, the Bible tells us. Whenever you see somebody doing something that the Bible says not to do, the truth is we just don't care that much about what the Bible says. So it's pretty important. You know, as we get closer and closer to the return of the Lord, we're going to find these things happen all the time. Um, Truth is, in the human condition, we do what we want and we rationalize doing it. So pray for Willow Creek Church. Pray for Bill Hybels. Pray for the woman who is going to be swimming upstream figuratively really fighting against God. And maybe the prayer could be that not just Willow Creek Church, but all churches that are ignoring what the Bible says so plainly, maybe they'll just decide that Jesus really meant it when he said he is the head of the church. Not anybody else. It's Jesus' church. Now, Larry, I'll also say this. We who are male pastors, we also do a lot of things that God doesn't want us to do. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make the fact that, well, we do it so they can do it. It just means that if you want to walk in the fullness that God has for you, if you want to experience the power of God in your ministry, you don't want to miss anything he has for you, then one thing is absolutely clear. We've got to do it His way. Here at Calvary Chapel, San Antonio, I don't get a vote. In 22 and a half years, Jesus has never said, Ron, what's your opinion on this? He gives orders. I follow orders. And those orders are often found right in the middle of our New Testament. All we have to do is take them. So, Larry, I'm sad that Willow Creek is doing this, but I'm not surprised. When you start throwing away doctrine, when you start improvising, finding out what you think the people want to hear, then you've ceased to become an ambassador for Jesus Christ. You become your own PR man, or woman in this case. 
Bill Hybels is a believer. He'll be in heaven. And he and Jesus will straighten all this out when he gets there. We're inside a minute now, so let me say one other thing. Um, churches that have women pastors, and we've got a bunch of them right here in San Antonio. It doesn't mean that they're not Christians. It doesn't mean that they can't teach or they can't preach. It doesn't mean they don't have those gifts. What it means is that they and all the people in the congregation are settling for less than God's best for them. And what a tragedy that is, that we would settle for less than everything God has for us. It's become way too easy for us to sort of sell Jesus out and still pretend like we're doing his work. Very hope that helps. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Word to Stand Up for Life. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We will be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the last half of our tuesday program 340-9585 for your live calls and questions here's a question from our email inbox from michael pastor ron good day to you sir and god bless you and paula thank you um, I have a question about spiritual gifts specifically mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're studying this in our Bible study, and we were asked about what spiritual gifts do we think we have. I'm not sure how to answer that. Do all believers have some type of spiritual gift? If so, how would we know? Is something that I can ask my Heavenly Father about in prayer? And is this something that I can ask my Heavenly Father about in prayer in order to reveal to me? Uh, and then he says, I appreciate your time and your radio ministry so much. Respectfully, Michael. Michael, thank you very, very much. First um, Corinthians 12, 7, Michael says, Now to each one, that's each believer, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So the answer to your question, does every Christian have spiritual gift or gifts? The answer is yes, at least one. At least one. I personally believe that we all have many more gifts than one. And finding what those gifts are is one of the real treasures of the sanctification process. As you walk with Jesus, as you're faithful to do what he sets before you, he's going to be able to set greater and greater things before you. And that's one of the ways that we sort of have our, our spiritual gifts revealed to us. Now, more specifically... Because we have a gift, at least one, God wants you to use that gift. And the way we discover what those gifts and how to use them are is, is there's actually a couple of ways. One, of course, by studying the Word. Uh, I think, Michael, that as you read your Bible, uh, again, um, uh, um, I want you to read systematically. Don't just read it sort of one page to the next page or open it and start reading it where you are. But in your everyday systematic reading, um, the Lord will reveal to you. He wants you to know what gifts that you have. Uh, I, I, I'm always uncomfortable when, when pastors or Bible study leaders will, will make people uncomfortable with that question. Uh, instead, ask people, I would ask people, so h- how is your relationship with the Lord? Explain to me what's going on. Explain to me how you hear from the Lord. Explain to me what, what God's saying to you as you read your word. Uh, a lot of times we're looking, when we ask that question, we're looking for people uh, to come up with some spiritual gift so we can put them to work instead of letting God give them the spiritual gift. So everybody has at least one gift. And I think as you're faithful, as I said earlier, in, in using that one gift for God's glory, then he'll give you more. Um, but all of the gifts of the Spirit, those in 1 Corinthians 12, as well as 
uh, Romans chapter 12, we use those gifts in proportion to our faith. In other words, we start taking little baby steps as a, as a new believer. And um, when we are obedient, then the power of the Holy Spirit comes behind us. But, but don't wait for goosebumps. Don't wait for some messenger from heaven to tell you what it is. This is a journey that you and Jesus take together as he reveals those gifts to you day by day. Take every opportunity to serve. If you're not serving where you are, Michael, then why would God give you another gift? Um, A lot of these gifts are tests, and I don't mean they're bad tests or trials, but they're tests. Uh, The very first gift I I ever received was a gift of tongues. Um, Brand new believer, it freaked me out because it didn't make any sense, and I'm a really logical guy. And so I think it was God's intent to sort of shake my world a little bit. And he wanted to see if I would use this gift or if I would just sort of dismiss it because it didn't make sense to me. And I wanted everything God had for me, so I, I used the gift. I, I love the gift. It's a great gift. Everybody ought to want it. Everybody ought to seek it. But it's one of those gifts that you don't wait for something to happen to you. You just read what the Bible says. Believe by faith that God's given you what He's asked, what you've asked for, and then walk in it. Uh, the spiritual gift I have of teaching. Um, it's not a gift I ever asked for, but it's a gift I discovered when I was faithful in other things. Uh, the gift of helps or serving. Um, that was a gift I, I was given by God, and I was so excited to be in God's house that I wanted to help in any way I could. And so I learned by serving how to explore even more depth or greater depth in those spiritual gifts. Um, my gift to, to be a pastor. Um, I love this gift because it's not only that God's given me the gift, but, but he's made it so that he says in Ephesians 4 that I'm his gift to the church. So I love those things. So Michael's just started exploring them. Read your word. Stay close to Jesus. And he'll let you know. Let me say one thing, and Michael, you didn't bring this up at all, but one of the things that frustrates me so much, um, we, we've got a number of churches that have decided to explore spiritual gifts using worldly techniques. I'll give you these personality profile tests. We used to give them, uh, long before I got saved, we used to give them to people uh, that, that, that worked for me. I'd want to see what kind of person they were, what their strengths and weaknesses were. So we give them these psychological profile testing. Well, churches have adopted, many, many, many churches have adopted uh, that means of, of, of identifying your spiritual gift. And that's just not even close. It's also not a natural gift, Michael. Um, many times God will use a natural gift. Uh, Michael, I think you're the same one who is at Joy of Jesus. Uh, you heard Jocelyn sing at the concert that she gave uh, on Saturday afternoon at Joy of Jesus. Now, obviously, she was been given great, great voice by the Lord. And it's a big voice. But she used it now for His glory. So she's taken a talent and made it a gift. But just the other side of that equation, there's a lot of people that God has gifted to do things that are way outside their, their, their natural giftedness. That's when God delights in surprising us. So read those gifts, Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and just say to the Lord, I want it all, Lord. I want everything you want. I don't want to bring attention to me. I'm not trying to prove how spiritual I am. I just want everything you have. I don't want to miss anything. And Michael, if you do that, as you study and learn more about who Jesus is, I promise you, you'll know what your gifts are. Be faithful in what you know God wants you to do, and he'll give you more to be faithful with in the days to come. Romans talks about use your gift in proportion to your faith. Don't be impatient. 
just let God sort of take your hand and walk you through this. I promise you, you'll find you've got a whole bunch of gifts and you don't want to miss anything that the Lord has for you. So, Michael, thanks for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Philip says, would you discuss dress codes for church? I'm perplexed by the casual way people go to church. Philip, uh, and I say this as nicely, as kindly as I can. Get over what other people do or what they wear. When you go to church, you're there with Jesus. You're there to hear his word. You're there to serve his people. And if the way somebody else dresses causes you to be perplexed, well, then you've forgotten what your role in church is. You're to love people. You're to serve people. You're not there to critique how they dress. You're not there to say, well, I dress up for church. They don't. Dress codes for church shouldn't exist. The only one, by the way, Philip, that is biblical is modesty. I want women to dress modestly. But but what modesty looks like is up to our individual taste. So I think this is pretty important. I I don't want anybody to miss church because they don't have the right clothing. I don't want anybody to miss church because they can't afford a suit and a tie. So I think casual can be good. Now, one of the things that we tell people here, Philip, is that we want them to dress with whatever God's provided for them to wear. If you came to church at Calvary Chapel, most of the people would be dressed um, dressy casual, I think. Um, the younger the crowd gets, the more casual casual it becomes. Um, the older um, among us will often still wear ties to church. But what's the value of dressing up your body if you haven't dressed up your heart? What's the value of dressing up your body if all you can do is look around and be perplexed by the way other people are dressed? Dress as the Lord leads you. And then what anybody and everybody else does doesn't matter at all. It will have zero effect on you. And I actually love looking out and seeing everything from suits to shorts. Um, I, I, I think that's what God's family looks like. And I think we ought to be welcoming, no matter how somebody's dressed, so that when they enter Jesus' place, they know that they're loved. So, Philip, this is just one of those things that I think you have to deal with. I remember being dragged to church by my grandmother. Didn't happen often, but when it did, she always snapped on one of those clip-on ties to me. I had to button the top button of my dress shirt, and and she put one of those clip-on ties that didn't even look good to a six-year-old. And I remember, I was so uncomfortable, I always got headaches. And I just equated going to church with getting a headache. I want everybody to be comfortable. This isn't your question, Philip, but one of the things that you'd find here at our church, and I hope in in every church, I know it's not true, but, but it should be. When you come to our church, kids love being here. Kids of all ages, they love being here. And in between services or before church or after church, they're having fun. You can hear them laugh and nobody's going, shh, shh, this is a holy place. We want this to be the highlight of their week. And I can promise you, none of the kids that grow up here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio are going to grow up hating church because this is a fun place where they also get taught about Jesus. So, Philip, consider your heart. You dress up. If you feel like dressing up, look like a million bucks. I tease people sometimes when I'm meeting new people and they're all dressed up. I always tease them and say, evidently the ushers didn't tell you we have one rule about dress code here. Can't look better than the pastor. (laughs) And they know I'm kidding with them, but uh, it's just my way saying you look really nice. 
and I want them here however they're comfortable. I do not wear a tie. Um, in my pre-Christ life, I wore suits every day. And I only wear them now for funerals and weddings and for Easter. And uh, I'm thrilled with that. So come as you are led. Thank you, Philip. Appreciate it. Here's another kid question or a church question. This is from Fred. He said, I went to a church where they didn't want my kids, my kids are ages 6 to 10, uh, in to be, in, they, they didn't want my kids to be in church with me and their mother. Why would the church ever not allow families together? Fred, uh, we, we, we don't not allow them. I know that's a double negative, but I said it on purpose. Um, we try to discourage families from bringing kids into the sanctuary. Uh, and the reason we do that is because uh, a six-year-old or a ten-year-old isn't going to hear me teach the Bible and understand it the way they'll understand it in a group that's being taught by somebody gifted to teach children. We want them to get the Bible. We come to church not to be together as a family. That's great that we do that. But we come to church to find out who Jesus is, to learn about him. And we teach the Bible verse by verse to kids all ages, just like I do to the adults. The difference is they make it fun, they make it exciting, they make it memorable. And there's other kids around their age. And so it becomes something they really enjoy doing. They really learn. Our kids know the Word. Our kids um, memorize the Word. Um, when kids come out of children's church and their family saying goodbye to me, I'll get down with the kids and say, did you have fun today? And, and they say, yes, I had a lot of fun. And that's what we want. We want this to be the beginning of a relationship with kids. If we bring kids in the sanctuary, and I've always said that the, the six-year-old or ten-year-old listening to somebody like me is a fate worse than death, we're not gearing to an audience that young. And they would just sit there and be miserable the whole time. They'll sit there and start to cause distractions. And the person most often distracted is either the mother or the father of those kids. Be still. Don't talk. Don't move. So maybe, Fred, you can reevaluate what church is. Now, we don't demand, especially when people are new here, if they want their kids with them, we let them come in. But our ushers, if they start, uh, if they're babies, they'll start crying. Or if they're, they're, they're young kids and they ca start causing distraction, our ushers will come up very nicely and, and ask that, that the parents take them outside. That offends people. I, I, I never can understand why, but it offends people sometimes. As Christians, we ought to come in and delight in obeying the rules. And we want your children to enjoy the experience, to hear the Word of God, and to understand it at their own level. Let me put a little different spin on this as well, Fred. If you've got kids, and you don't say how many, they're ages 6 to 10, that could be 1, or 2, 3, or 4, you need a break from them. You and your wife need to come into the sanctuary where you can focus completely on the Word of God. Not not on disciplining your kids. Not having to worry about other people going, shh, shh. See, the best thing you can do for your children is to be the most godly man you can. And the way you do that is by listening to the Word of God. Letting it change you. Letting it have free reign in your heart. So that's the basis of our policy here at Calvary Chapel. And our policy, um, you'll find other churches just like it, others more strict. Um, every church I've ever been in where kids were invited in, where they had one service and no children's church, um, it was a disaster. Nobody could really enjoy or understand anything. 
because of the kids just not being ministered to. In the book of Nehemiah, when Ezra, the scribe, got up on a high platform and he opened the book, the law, and he began to read it, it said that the audience consisted of everybody who could understand. And they were out there for hours. So the separation, I think, has its origin in Scripture. We're not trying to break up a family. What we're trying to do is strengthen the family by making sure that the family is serving the Lord. So, Fred, I hope that helps. And if uh, you don't say that we were that church, so if you were offended, forgive. That's what Christians do. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. Why is it that most Christians are Republicans? And why won't more Christians speak out against Trump? Um, I can't answer for most Christians. Um, I, I think the way our culture has sort of divided itself left and right anonymous, I think that uh, conservatives uh, more accurately reflect biblical worldview um, issues like um, abortion, um, the Bible in schools, um, prayer, um, just everything. Um, sin, um, especially as divided as our culture has become. And so I think the Republican mindset or heart set actually appeals to a larger group of people. Uh, but I want to be sure you understand this. Jesus isn't a Republican, nor is he a Democrat. Um, our allegiance as Christians should be only to God, uh, not to a party. Um, I'm, I'm certain the Lord would want us to participate in the process. But he would also tell us, don't put our hope in men or women. Certainly don't put your hope in a party. Um, why we don't speak out against Trump. As Christians, Romans chapter 13 tells us that we're to respect and to honor the president. Now, uh, I'm going to be very critical of a lot of Christians now because for the eight years that President Obama was in the office, way too many Christians spoke out against him in disrespectful ways. Yes, he was advancing an ungodly political agenda. But we still needed to pray for him and to respect the office. And we didn't do it. We didn't do it. I've heard what was supposed to be mature Christians say horrible, horrible things about him. And that just shouldn't ever be heard from the mouth of the heart of a Christian. Why we don't speak out against Trump, I think, is another embarrassment. Not that we should demean him or belittle him or disrespect him. But the fact that a conservative or supposedly a conservative finally got into the White House doesn't mean that everything he does is godly. This man's not a believer. Not only is he not a believer, he is causing confusion is a nice word, but he's causing division with the things that he does and that he says. And if we can be honest, we've got to be able to say those things are harmful. It doesn't matter that he's pro-life. It doesn't matter that other Christian values are are. are, are more closely represented in him because he's a Republican president. But we got to be able to say when he's doing something wrong, it, it makes us sound like we're hypocrites. We don't criticize the horrible things that he's saying and doing. Our government is in a mess. Doesn't have to be, but, but it is because these are godless men and women. And so they need our prayers. 
You can respect somebody for the office they hold without supporting them. You don't have to talk bad about somebody. But you do have to care enough about their salvation that you want them in heaven and are moved to pray for them. So, I don't want to get any more political than that. I hope that answers your question. We're inside two minutes. Let me get to one more question. Uh, Anthony, he says, what is the difference between justification and sanctification? Anthony, um, justification is a a term um, when we are saved, uh, we are justified. Now, the best way to think of that word is just as if I'd never sinned. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And so when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we're born again, he gives us that status. We're perfect in his eyes. Imagine that for a moment, just a moment, Anthony. You're perfect in his eyes. Well, obviously, that's the view from heaven. But we've got a view from earth, and we look at ourselves, and we know uh, our first call today was, was Jordan. And he talked about, can we ever stop sinning? And the answer is no. So sanctification is the process of daily being made more like Jesus. Every day, learning about him, spending time with him, more like Jesus. It is a process that will result in glorification, but all because we've been justified. I hope that answers your question. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock to take your live calls and questions. Thanks for tuning in. I appreciate it more than you know. God bless you. See you tomorrow. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.